Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you said I'm going back to my hotel after the show, I just assumed like a Holiday Inn or a travel lodge no, or something. No. You're going in style, like a badass. Dude, I... How did you discover that place? You stayed there before? Um, well, here's the thing. Hold on one second. I'm just going to text the wife back. She just woke up. dancing maybe four or five years ago at um, a club in uh, the Custard Factory across the way. Right. <clears throat> Had a total blast. And uh, knowing that the wife was coming um, out to visit for tour, I wanted to show her that area. So I just looked online and went on the, uh, you know, did sort of the hotel search in the area and there it was. I went on the website. I was like, oh, this looks right up my alley and it was inexpensive and we checked in and had a great night and I was like I'm not leaving so I, I booked another night just by myself and it's a killer just pub just sat man. at the pub and sat by the fire had some whiskey and then until they 
shut it down and went upstairs, had an old school claw foot bathtub soaked in that and knocked <laughs> out. It was awesome. See, I didn't even realize they had rooms because I always get drinks in there before the HMV shows. If ever I go see a gig there, yeah. I'm always in the old crown beforehand. I didn't realize it was a hotel. Yeah, and it's in, fairly inexpensive. I had a room with a huge bed and uh, a couch and then a separate bathroom, like I said, with a claw foot tub. And it was like 60 pounds. Wow. Yeah, that's killer. I mean, you sit at the pub and you literally just can walk up to your bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of perfect. I mean, I don't know why more bands don't do that. I know that there's sort of the the rigid schedule that you need to adhere to, but you know, having been on a couple of tours and seen the way they work, it still always surprises me that people always choose this. You know, the soulless holiday in travel lodge. Yeah. Not to disrespect them. I <laughs> if think you're listening, that. But. I think that probably that's because of bus parking. Right. Usually you those places somewhere will near. accommodate. Yeah. But, you know, for me, having that room and, like, that cozy vibe of that place was a total game-changer mentally and physically. Just nice to be somewhere where you feel almost at home. Yeah. Yeah. Do you try and spend a bit of time when you are on the road getting to know the cities you're in? Absolutely. Because, again, the other side of touring is that people get to see all these amazing places all over the world but so much of their day is either like just spent in a hotel or on the bus or in the venue and they don't really go outside of that kind of Bermuda Triangle yeah. perimeter. I think for me it depends where my head's at because you know I struggle with depression so when I get down I tend to sleep a lot and stay on the bus but primarily I'm all about getting up. As soon as I get up I'll get a coffee and go. And if the weather's nice, uh, which is not really the case here, um, <laughs> I usually, yeah, I'll have my uh, bicycle with me, and I like to go on long bicycle trips, and just good for the head, good for the mind. But um, yeah, I think that's the probably my favorite thing about touring is the travel, um, seeing new places, not airports and stuff like that, but like actual cities. Yeah, and like there's something about walking around a city and just taking it in. Sometimes I'll have headphones on. But I won't even listen to music. I'll just have it off and just observe and, you know, sort of feel invisible. Like I'm just coasting through the crowd. I love that kind of stuff. It inspires me. People watching, stuff like that. I love it. And architecture. I love architecture as well. So I think you're in a really unique position in a band because a lot of people travel the world, but with, um, you know, people who are in bands that have fans who come to see them, you kind of already have this infrastructure and this environment in which you can make instant connections and form relationships. Mm. Um, obviously, as a band who's toured for many years and you've been in other bands and toured, you know, multiple times, have you found that over the years you've managed to meet friends and actually build and maintain relationships with people all over the world, which you wouldn't have necessarily got to have done had you just gone to visit Amsterdam, yeah, to yeah. visit Birmingham? Yeah, absolutely. But I think. I have a connection to people no matter where I go, what I do. I can't help but talk and make new friends and, and at least have, like last night I had actually a political discussion at the pub, which is a big no-no, but it was really good Like to get the British perspective on what's going on here and then me talking about my thoughts about what's going on in our country. And I love that kind of stuff. I love that discourse, but majority of the time I'm pretty quiet just because I have to rest my voice. Um, but getting back to what you're saying about friends, yeah, I find that this band surrounds itself with people who become like family. Uh, and majority of those people are people that work for us. 
So whether it's our crew or people that work for a promotions company or a record label, those are the types of people that become my friends. For example, I'm going to be in um, Paris for vacation in January. I reach out to my friend Manon, who works for the band, and I'm going to have dinner with her. And going to London, I'll reach out to Kirsten, who is our publicist. Like Those people become my friends, and I cherish their friendship. And yeah, if I wasn't in a band, I wouldn't have these friends. Absolutely not. Um, and that's great. It's great because when they come to New York, I can host them and vice versa. It's it's fun, man. And the more I travel, the more people I meet, the more I'm humbled by it and the more I realize that, you know, the separation between most humans is pretty small. We're pretty similar. I think shyness plays a big factor. And I'll give you an example. Is last night... Uh, there was a girl in the room which I could swear down was a singer in a, like a ska punk band that I used to go watch 15 years ago religiously in Birmingham uh, and I saw her and I was like that's got to be Kate that's got to be this girl but I was like nah it's just too weird of me if I just go up to a stranger and just eventually after like three or four times of passing her and going through the dilemma in my head I went you know what I'm going in I went your name's not Kate is it and she was like yeah and I was like from Trig Boy and she was like how the hell do you know that? Like, there hasn't been a band for 20 years. We get into this instant conversation. I think sometimes people, myself included, are trapped in their own insecurities, perhaps, or shyness and that unwillingness to just put yourself out there and take a chance. Because whenever you do nine times yeah. out of ten, the rewards are always fruitful. I think that's a really good point. And, you know, I, along with depression comes anxiety, and I have social anxiety big time. Where, um, you know, sometimes before gigs, I got to do a whole thing, like really meditate and focus and allow myself to feel vulnerable because that's essentially what you're doing. Yeah, that's a big thing for me. And I'm always proud of people when they approach me and they do it in such a way where it feels like it's just another human talking to another human instead of someone who's fanning out or shaking or crying or being nervous. Um, so, yeah, I tend to have that issue as well, especially around people that I admire. Uh, we did a tour over in Australia, the Soundwave tour, and Mike Patton was on that bill with his band, um, was it Tomahawk? Yeah, yeah, Tomahawk. Yeah, yeah. And our dressing room was next to theirs the whole time, and I avoided him. I did not want, I just like, I can't. What, do you say to someone like that? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, finally, the last day, it was like, just passed him a few times, and he noticed I was wearing a Bad Brains t-shirt, and I was just like, that's my moment. <laughs> just, and I said to him, thank you for your work, you know, not just with your music, but the way you carry yourself and your attitude. And it's like, I don't want to fanboy out too much. And he was going to have a photo. He's like, sure. And that was it. <laughs> that was the first time in my life I was actually nervous to, to talk to somebody. Did you get it a lot or not a lot? Uh, from fans? Uh, from yourself meeting, say, people who you've looked up to and admired over Thankfully, the Thankfully, no. Um, I just recently met Barney from Napalm Death. I Birmingham boy. Yeah, I've yeah. looked up to him for, since I was a teenager. And he was so disarming in the best way possible. He couldn't be more down to us. Yeah, and I was just like, I immediately was like, dude, you're a legend. Not just your music, but like... I heard an interview he did with Jamie Jost on his podcast, and he's just such a brilliant man. And he was just like, oh, thanks, Mike. Like, just yeah. really down to earth. And it was me like, okay, I'm going to stop treating him like my hero. But it was hard because he was just being a normal guy. And I was like, this guy's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> and it makes him cooler, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm like, damn. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> um, your mental health, Jesse, I don't want to pry into areas where you oh, don't want to discuss. Um, 
my mum, uh, she's been well for about 10 years now, but growing up she had severe manic depression, which is obviously a very specific form of it. Yeah. And, you know, she'd go on flights of total mania and, you know, we'd have to put her in institutions and allow her to come down from them. And, and it was rough and it was hard, but there's so many different forms of it and it affects people in such different ways. And I think the hard thing for me growing up in a sort of suburban white picket fence, everyone knows everyone's business, gossipy environment, 15, 20 years ago as well, it was such a stigma. And if you had uh, a parent or, you know, I guess young people, it wasn't as prevalent back then. But, um, you know, we were sort of like blacklisted in our community, you mm. know, because I had a crazy mum. And I feel like now the dialogue is a lot more open and there's a lot of, uh, you know, leaps and bounds being made in many ways. But the flip side, I think, is that actually it's more rife now than it's ever been. Hmm. What are your personal experiences with it? Where did you think it sort of began in your life? Has it always been there? And how does it manifest itself? Yeah, it runs in my family. My grandfather was manic. Um, probably, it often does run in the family. Probably even it? bipolar. I don't know if he was diagnosed properly, but I remember him, you know, he would get on a high and he'd be the king of the world. You know, um, he was a water skier. Uh, it was like his passion so when he was on a high he would put my grandmother's spring dress on and go water skiing and do crazy stuff and make people laugh and just be this amazing like figure that everyone was drawn to and then he would just disappear for weeks and I remember going and just seeing him laying in his bed watching TV and just not even really responsive would barely even acknowledge that you were in the room, like, dark. So I know it runs in my family. I'm pretty sure, um, and my, my sister also suffers from it. We've got, thankfully, a more mild case of it. And I used to have it worse, but through therapy and through natural medications and through exercise and just having more tools to build upon to try to help come out of it as I feel it starting to come down on me when I can sense it coming which is not always um, I've had a better handle on it but for me I think the big thing was talking about it when I started to like let people know on a very public level on my Instagram and my Twitter to open that dialogue up I've had conversations with fans and friends because of it and I feel like the more you know you're able to help yourself a bit through therapy. It's almost like um, sometimes I can tell when I'm getting anxious or I get angry or I have mood swings. It's like I feel like it's coming, like I'm going to slide into a dark place. So I reach out to people and I actually ask for help or medicate. Um, I think having that dialogue is the reason why I'm able to function a lot better than I used to. You know, I haven't had a suicidal thought in a long time and when I was younger it used to happen a lot and it's not something that you really can explain to somebody who doesn't know what it's like because um, I think that there's also still a stigma attached to mental illness definitely yeah where people tend to sort of make fun of other people or try to condescend or you know um, think that they do know what it's like when everybody's different you know some people yeah you can visibly look at someone and go wow they look depressed where other people can be pretty highly functioning and you'd never know it that they have a hard time sleeping at night and have bouts of crying and like feel suicidal or whatever so for me it's just been 
keeping that dialogue open I'm almost I almost wear it as a badge of pride because I know it helps people so I talk about it as much as I comfortably can I think the way you use social media is particularly inspiring in this day and age uh, I saw the other day that you kind of said you know I had to delete and get rid of my Facebook account because it's not a positive zone and I very much feel like in the last couple of years particularly three years ago I broke my spine in like a gnarly accident Oof. and I spent three months flat on my back in bed doing what they called conservative treatment because the fractures were like complicated and they said rather than operate and risk fucking you up even more if you just lay flat for three months we feel like the bones will heal naturally and you know thankfully it worked because here I am but obviously you've got three months in bed lying on your back I had a broken wrist as that's, well so I, I couldn't intense. write or keep a diary or anything so Facebook during that time for me was uh, an online diary and a way of me exercising what I was going through sharing what I was going through and working it out and also communicating with people who you know couldn't visit for whatever reason but could get in touch by that medium people I hadn't seen in many cases or spoken to in years ex-girlfriends all this amazing love came pouring out and it was a really positive thing in my life through that that whole period then as I sort of got better and just you know adjusted to normal life quote unquote and would use it to post more mundane stuff I guess as people do um, that sort of coincided for me with a, a different tone across the board with people's posts and I found it an area of negativity a lot of passive aggressive do you mm. know what I mean and I feel like it is just this sea of, of nonsense now to me, it, yeah, to me it's like a constant commercial you know and I yeah. when I can't stand TV I mean I watch it when I'm on tour when I just need to be numb but uh, it's like commercials yelling at you and just almost brainwashing it's just this negativity and it's actually triggered some really dark places that I've gone in my head because of it just seeing people's ignorance and hatred towards each other and when the politics started to really get stirred up in, in the states that's when I was just like yeah I can't do this anymore I'm going on there and I'm trying to like be positive and try to fight against the, the wave of ignorance and hatred but it was so overwhelming that I just decided that it's, I had to take care of myself it was affecting me in a really bad way and making me dislike people that I'm close to and even some family members. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? If they think those things, I don't even want to know. I want to treat them with love and respect face-to-face -face when I do see them. And I think that that disconnection of face-to-face -face contact, that disconnection of body language creates passive aggressiveness, creates this forum of bullshit. It's just fake and you don't know who's being true or not. And I think it's a poisonous way to be. I think we've lost so much. Even just texting and emailing and, you know, that texting especially. I'm the first to text rather than call you and hear your voice. It's just become a part of my safeguard. So if someone calls me nine times out of ten, I'm like, oh, I want to answer. Really, is that? It's become right. that. Yeah, and I'm. it makes me sad because I never used to be like that. But I think that's kind of what Facebook is too. It's it gives you a false sense of bravery, it gives you a false sense of safety, and people say things they would never say face to face on Facebook. Same thing with comments on a YouTube forum or whatever. I stopped reading those years ago. <laughs> yeah, you have wow. to do that. You have crushing my soul. Don't read soul. the comments. Yeah. <laughs> so bad. 
So yeah, I'm just, it's I just, a shame. Because I liberated it, myself from that. I think it's one of the best things I've done for myself. It could have been. I think it could have gone down a different way, but I feel like it's gone too far in one way now to ever change. And I think the die has been cast with mm. that, and it's over. Did you watch Black Mirror, that British show? Didn't. I recommend watching it, but maybe when you're in a positive frame of mind, yeah. <laughs> it's a dissection really of the world of social media and its place in society now and where it's potentially going. By a comedian, Charlie Brooker, who does a show called Newswipe as well, okay, yeah. where he takes snippets of the news and parodies it. Very smart guy, um, and it's very sort of dystopian, incredible, but dark because you're like that's not that too far away yeah it's crazy shit uh, the flip side of course is you don't really go on Instagram and see someone take a picture and then write a passive aggressive comment do you I find that a very positive expressive creative zone yeah for the most part yeah and it's odd I don't know why that is but maybe it's just the niche that it's mm -hmm. under and even with Twitter I mean the people I follow at least I'm very selective and I don't spend a lot of time on Twitter. I usually just post and... Yeah, yeah, get out. <laughs> but there's a good amount of comedians I do pay attention to because I think they're hysterical and intelligent. So, yeah, I guess it's... For me, I've been able to have a lot more control with those social media where Facebook just got out of hand. I mean, anyone can comment and anyone can get at you. Yeah, social media is a very interesting thing for me. <laughs> I have a love-hate relationship with it. I think it's such a part of you know it's what I what I do as well and you know being in a band it's so integral you know as I've come in you're making tour diary videos so you are present online and you know you're bringing people in because there's so much room to actually share the experience of being in a band beyond just the show and the record isn't there there's this whole three-dimensional world yeah you can bring people into with it and that's why you know we just released that um, that blu-ray that does tell our story and yeah. I think the more you and there's a fine line, you know, you don't want to give everything away. Um, what do you think of a, a documentary like Some Kind of Monster? Oh. <laughs> or is that a whole other subject? <laughs> I See, that's that's where I would draw the line, I think. Yeah. And I, I do respect Metallica. I mean, they've been doing this for so long. But I wouldn't want to put a documentary like that out. I would be embarrassed to do that. But, you know to each their own I think maybe they had to tell their story and they had to let people know how bad it had gotten in that camp and you know I think for us for example that Blu-ray like there's the whole story isn't told there's still stuff that's unsaid out of respect for people and I think having that control is good so you give people more of the positive side of things but I do think that aside from shows and, and the, the dressing room, it's good to let people know that we're just regular people. You know, we have our own issues, we have our problems, we have our bad days. I think sharing a little bit of that is good. I don't think sharing a lot of it is, is good. I don't think it's a good look. But the other side of the, this lifestyle, I feel, is, is important to let people know that, you know, there's a... A darker side to it you know a side that has melancholy and homesickness and relationship problems um, but again I think in a small amount that's good to share that stuff I'm careful with how much I share going back to 2002 uh, Alive We're Just Breathing that era of the band um, obviously a, a tough time in your life right mm-hmm yeah that was a very confusing dark time where I didn't have the language to 
ask for help, to know that I needed help. Um, so yeah, I was suffering a great deal um, from depression without knowing how or you know how to get myself out of it. So I spiraled down to a pretty low point around that time. Yeah. What's your memory of making the record? Was that a, a joyful experience? No. No. <laughs> no. no I, I, I didn't know who I was as a vocalist. I was still trying to figure that out. If you listen to the self, first self-titled record, <laughs> to Alive Just Breathing, the difference in songwriting is huge. I was making a big effort to be a better songwriter, but I didn't have total control over my voice. I didn't know how to sing properly. I feel like I've only just started to learn in the past few years how to sing properly. Um, so I think there was a lot of insecurity involved with that. So it was a very painful process. And Adam had to do a lot of like coaxing and coaching to get me to put what I put on that record. So yeah, it's not a pleasant thought, that whole record and that experience. But looking back on it, it captured such an interesting time in our lives. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's kind of the first record that people started to pay attention to us. It's an incredibly special album as well, I think, and it was a unique album in its time. Mm, yeah. It stands up as a unique album. I guess it's just the right place at the right time, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> were you aware in any way that what you were making was special at the time? No. no. I mean, special to me. Yeah. You know, because I was getting my words out there and creating this style that I was super stoked to do which is the mixing the melodic with the aggressive it's something I've always wanted to do and that actually stems from being a fan of uh, death metal the early gothic death metal like Paradise Lost and uh, Edge of Sanity and um, bands that were kind of already doing that already with the death metal and the melody but I was like I want to do it with a hardcore feel to it I wanted to do it with like a sort of the DC indie rock post uh, what do you call it the pre-emo music that was coming out of DC <laughs> I was such a fan of that I was such a fan of metal I was such a fan of hardcore and I wanted to mash it all together so that's kind of where the vocal style came from for Alive Just Breathing tell me about uh, meeting your wife when she came into your life and you know <laughs> the role that she's played in uh, I guess keeping you on the straight and narrow yeah well she's <laughs> also yeah that's a whole that's a it could be a book right there um, <laughs> how we, did you meet we met at a um she was in the audience at a Kill Switch Engage show in the early days um, only because of my roommate at the time who I was living with um, was a uh, beat poet a spoken word poet and she was in that scene as well in Providence, Rhode Island this place called the Black Repertory Theater which hosted these competitions where poets would go up and do their thing and they had met um, through that group and he invited her to come to the show and she didn't have any idea about metal or hardcore or anything like that. I think the heaviest band she had listened to at that time was Rage Against the Machine but she was more of a hip-hop, R&B, jazz kind of girl with a big, huge afro at the time. And uh, my buddy introduced us after the set and I think she said something along the lines of I see God in you. Something huge and heavy like that and our eyes connected and it was one of those moments you can't you can't make up where it's just I looked at her and I was like I need to know this person I absolutely need to know this person so it's I, a beautiful feeling isn't it? yeah it was, well, it was overwhelming I didn't really know what it was because usually with you know 
a male female thing it's a physical attraction but there was something a lot more profound than that and I think that's probably why we're still together um, because of that connection and we've had our issues in our marriage I mean being on the road is not easy being both being <laughs> depressive people it's really hard um, and we both have addiction problems you know and I think another side effect of being having anxiety and depression is um, my relationship with alcohol is either good or gets really bad so I gotta like try to balance that as well we both have that problem but um, yeah she's been my, my soulmate my best friend and she's definitely been the topic of more than one Kill Switch Engage song because um, our love is is definitely bruised and uh, got some scars to it but I think any real love should have those uh, scars and bruises you got married um, just after the album was finished Alive Which Is Breathing Right just before you were about to go out and spend however long you were meant to spend touring it yeah literally day, days before the um, full US tour with hypocrisy and scar culture um, yeah so was, I got married in four or five days after we were on the road yeah which was a mistake I, should, I definitely should have taken time to get used to married life and be there yeah L getting married and leaving right away is definitely a, a, the start of many many problems in my relationship with her yeah how did it manifest itself within the bands uh, being out on the road and not being with her and going through what you were going through and then if you don't mind talking about it I know you've probably been asked it a thousand times when you reached that point where you said I'm out I've got to go I think the underlying problem to all that was depression and I think that getting married or not I still would have I think pulled the plug or even worse harmed myself in some way for sure um, and back then this is before cell phones and all that so my communication with her was via a payphone when I could get to one which involves no privacy right right you're in a parking lot, you know, and I remember there was more than one time where I was having total breakdowns on the phone with her. But it wasn't even just because of missing her, it was because that's where I was in my head, and she was the only one I felt like I could talk to about it. You know, when Killswitch left on tour, we weren't all best friends. We were mutual acquaintances from the music scene, so I didn't feel like I had the... I wasn't comfortable reaching out to the guys and saying, hey... I'm not doing so good. I need help, which now so easy for me. If I have a bad day, first of all, they can tell. And number two, I know I can go to any one of them and be like, hey, I'm not doing well. And they're like, what's up, dude? That's great. Come have a drink. Let's talk. Like that. That's the kind of camp we have now. But back then, it wasn't like that. So I just was spiraling. We're, you know, we're in a van and trailer and hotels. Again, no privacy, but I was curling up in my sleeping bag in the back of the van and just hiding out wake up play the show after the set literally come back to the van curl back up in my sleeping bag and not talk to anyone and just stopped communicating with people and didn't have any energy or desire to do anything barely ate just bad so it got to the point where I, I was feeling suicidal I was feeling super dark I called my brother my brother's like I'll come get you we were playing in Seattle. He drove. He came get me right before the show, and I just I left without saying goodbye. I didn't have the mental wherewithal to even say goodbye to them. I just was in emergency mode. Like, I was suicidal. I was in a dark place. 
I've never been that far down, but I can completely uh, sympathize and understand that point where you're at, where you just can't look a partner, a friend, a band in the eye and explain to them because you're panicking, you know, and you're freaking out so much. This is how I feel. You just have to cut, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Thankfully, I... And it's not like what people would call an honourable thing, but sometimes it's just the way you've got to do for your own... Yeah, yeah, when I look back on it now... Safety and health, right? Yeah, being the person that I am now, I see that as a weakness, but that's with who I am now. I, I can... I have the language. I know how to say I need help. I know how to tell people I'm not in a good spot. Um, but I didn't feel like I had any other choice. I just couldn't. I think I probably would have harmed myself if I stayed out there. What was the first thing you did once you... I mean, where did you go, first of all? And what was the first thing? Or the first few things, the first steps you took to, towards well, trying to get whole? Uh, no, it, it got worse. It right. got worse from there. Um, I threw myself into, like, three different jobs and worked as hard as I could, uh, especially since financially I had to do it. After quitting the band, I had nothing. Um, so I, I think I threw myself into three jobs and numbed myself with alcohol and drugs um, and then I remember I started working at this bakery in Jamestown Rhode Island which is a little island in Rhode Island and um, gorgeous like big huge rocks and um, not so much beaches but more just like cliffs and ocean waves and um, a lot of like um, people who are kind of hippie and natural live there so I surrounded myself with that those types of people I started apprenticing at an organic bakery learning how to make bread from scratch from an Italian bread maker and I was determined that that was going to be my new path like <laughs> become a artisan baker or something just I was desperate to find something <clears throat> and I started to realize that I wasn't in a good spot just from working with him and being in that environment in the summer where it was warm and I would go down to the beach and spend a lot of time alone that's when I started to realize that uh all wasn't well and um, where I started to I don't know if I really asked for help I just definitely let my wife know at the time that I just wasn't in a good headspace and it's around that time that I joined the band Seamless and started to write blues music with yeah, that yeah. band and that was actually really good therapy um, great project as well yeah well thank you um, but from there it was just drinking and blues I just I think I got I gained a lot of weight. And you perpetuated just, that mythology almost. Yeah. Um, and I still look back on that period of being in Seamless, which was, what, five, six years, as being a pretty dark period for me. Um, a lot of drinking, a lot of numbing. But um, I started to learn a lot about who I was. And I don't think I had a real sense of identity prior to me starting to go through these these dark periods, if you will. You know, through suffering, through through experiences that uh, are difficult, uh, you often find who you really are, what you're worth, what you're made of. At rock bottoms, where you find yourself, right? They do say that. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's true. I sure, I sure have been there more than once. But um, I think the first time that I was sincerely considering to the point where I was preparing to, to harm myself was around that time, that time period. Yeah. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I know that you're not someone who considers themselves a role model you probably retire from that responsibility if anything but i think that your journey and what you've been through and the way that you share those experiences with me now on instagram you know shows with fans in lyrics it's an incredible power to possess and i think that everything that you've been through without just you know trying to say nice things for the sake of saying nice things this comes from the heart it's really shaped you into quite an inspiring you know admirable incredible human being oh thank you I think that might just be a side effect of it <laughs> yeah I don't I definitely don't see myself no no because you, you know you're a humble human being if anything and but, uh, yeah. and that's part of it you know that's part of have you had many meaningful encounters with, with fans over the years who've kind of come up to you and approached you and said you know not you saved my life but you've changed my life you've impacted my life yeah I've had both and to me that's that as strange as it is and I don't take it on it does inspire me to keep going and keep writing and I think that's probably one of the only reasons aside from the fact that I don't have any desire to do anything else <laughs> you don't want to get have back no to being skill a set yeah I have no skill set <laughs> I have no sort of formal education that I can lean back on that I think that I'm going to probably do this in one form or another until I die but what makes it meaningful and why I can get up in the morning and look in the mirror and be okay with who I am is because I do know that I am having a positive impact on people. You know, being raised by uh, two parents who constantly took in people who were down on their luck, whether they were homeless or ex-drug addicts trying to recover or, you know, people who got out of prison. My childhood is peppered with those types of people and being around those types of people my parents having compassion on those people so I think that that's where I get get some of my personality and my my love for people I can't help it as much as I'm harbor a lot of anger towards the ignorance of this world I have a deep love for humanity that I just can't shake and I think that comes through in my words 
and again gives me a sense of purpose to reach out to those people who I know are suffering because we all have issues we all have problems and metal music to me and hardcore and metal music is the perfect venue for that because most people get in to that type of music because they don't feel accepted because they have issues because they've been abused so for me that's that's why it's important for me to put my message into this type of music because I feel like I'm one of you like when the people come up to me and say those types of things I feel that way about other musicians I'm equally as much a fan and indebted to music and musicians as they give me credit for so to me it just reciprocates it's part of the the beauty of music the cycle right yeah and like we were saying in an interview the other day uh, yesterday that language of music that just transcends even cultures and, and countries and boundaries it's I'm honored to be an instrument of music and to be able to inject a message into that so yeah to me it's it's a lifestyle it's not something that I sort of put out there as hey check me out you know <laughs> what does British culture mean to you I know that a lot of your musical DNA makeup comes from American hardcore American metal music I know that the two-tone movement in particular but also British punk um, has played a big role in your life as much as in your you know your musical path mm. tell me about your uh, the ways in which you identify and appreciate Britain as a nation and its its art and its subcultures yeah um, UK punk when I was younger was one of the first things to like that just the the, the sound of it you know for example um, GBH was one of the first bands I remember hearing and being like wow that's Birmingham again yeah that's like <laughs> one of those bands that that was what I thought punk would sound like like just that chainsaw guitars and that that voice you know with the accent you know it's, it was so different from from you know the Ramones and, and you know the Damned and uh, Dead Boys and bands that I knew prior to that so UK punk was, was probably one of the things outside of American hardcore that really drew me in and then with that was the style of the Mohawks I started doing wearing a mohawk when I was young because of UK punk and that look uh, and then as I got older I fell in love with reggae music at a young age through bands like The Clash um, and then on the American side the Bad Brains and from my love of reggae I really got into Roots reggae and then I discovered Steel Pulse which is a British reggae band and then from the British reggae scene came my love for um skinhead culture but I didn't know that it was called skinhead to me growing up with American media I always thought skinhead was this you know neo-nazi racist movement and then growing up in you know parts of Philadelphia in the 80s seeing the violence and that the quote-unquote skinheads caused I never put two and two together that the, the name skinhead was actually British working-class people who fell in love with reggae and ska and then as the skinhead movement grew into the punk and oi and hardcore um, New York hardcore embraced it bands like the Cro-Mags and Agnostic Front so to me skinhead I realized f was a huge part of my DNA like from the ska to the reggae to the punk and that happened it kind of all came together for me 
only just four years ago in Birmingham at a place called the Custard Factory. Tell me about this night. Oh, it was such a, it such a magical night for me. I've always been a musical mutt. I've always identified with... That's a great time. All, yeah, all, I love that. All different types of music. You know, punk's always been there. Hardcore's always been there. And reggae just became such a obsession of mine. It still is. I still collect reggae vinyl. I'm absolutely in love with reggae music. <clears throat> um, so, through the crew, uh, Josh, who's been working for Killswitch for 13 years now, um, who's a really dear friend of mine, knows a lot about punk and uh, he's the one that kind of got me into the, the the clothing the Fred Perry and the Ben Shermans and the you know dressing smart which I still love it's very expensive but it looks nice um, and the whole Doc Martens and you know that whole subculture of skinhead and uh, we were playing a show at the the other uh, academy across way yeah the HMV in Digbeth yeah. so you're in Digbeth yeah, yeah. And he found out through a record shop that there was this Northern Soul slash skinhead party. He's like, we got to go. And I was like, oh, my God, this is exciting. Like, I've always kind of wanted to experience this. I'd watched documentaries on it. I had, you know, read about it and asked people about it. So we walk into this club that's over there in the custard factory. And the top, the bottom floor is all skinhead and, and ska dressed people, you know, just dressed to the nines with the suspenders and the shine boots. People from their 20s all the way into their 50s. Just people who lifestyle skin. Like people who have been skanking and dancing since, you know, 69, basically. <laughs> um, and the music was incredible. And I remember standing by the DJ and seeing these little 45s go on. And I didn't recognize half of it. I was like, I don't know what this is. It's music I'd never heard. Uh, that old school ska skinhead reggae stuff and then on the top floor of the club was a northern soul thing with just people dressed to the nines with the skinny ties and the pork by hats and beehive haircuts and it's like you've gone back in time right sincerely and just dancing to soul music and I was smitten we were there till maybe 4am but I remember calling my wife from the bathroom drunk and being like I found like a part of who I am I, it makes sense now I've always loved punk and hardcore but you know visually if you look at me I look like a punk for the most part but my heart is just in reggae music like if I could grow out dreads and be in a reggae band and not feel like I was being disingenuous I would do it but I know that's not totally who I am but it's a huge part of who I am and that night sort of just solidified it and I've been a, identifying with the skinhead movement ever since then and just love it. It's it's not, It doesn't define me, but it's definitely a big part of who I am. Right on. And sometimes there are just those one nights, those occasions that completely you know change and steer the course of your life forever, don't they? A moment of full-on realization, like an epiphany, bang. Yeah. Yeah, musically and even fashion-wise, I've... Thanks to that night, I've spent thousands of dollars on Fred Perry's. And <laughs> well, it was exactly how you were dressed yesterday when I came up. You looked dapper. Oh, thank you. Not sir. that you don't today, but yesterday was like yeah, today's casual day. I haven't yeah, really yeah. left the bus. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, at what point did you start to build bridges again with with the boys? Because assumedly, it was a bit of a disconnect with communication for a while, right? Yeah, but you know, surprisingly, Adam 
kept in touch with me. He would call and check on me. And in fact, um, after I left the band, a week and a half later, I got a phone call from Roto and the Record saying, we just get this opportunity to be interviewed by MTV, which at the time it was relevant because they still played music yeah. in there. With Headband it was still Fly. music television. <laughs> Um, so they convinced me to come to New York because at the time I was living in Rhode Island to do this interview and pretend like I was still in the band so I showed up and that was just awkward but immediately Adam and Joel were be like are you okay like it's okay we'll figure it out I'm sorry you're going through this they extended you know the the, um, kindness to me immediately Mike T had a hard time with it which I don't blame him Um, so Adam kept in touch and checked on me he used to call me from tour and just tell me how things are going and how Howard's working out and, and that helped did it was that like a, a it nine? was not well for me it took the weight off my shoulders of the guilt that I started to feel after I quit because once I got over myself a bit and sort of realized what I had done to people who were my friends even though I didn't really consider them close friends knowing that they got a new singer that worked out really well I mean end of heartache case in point it sort of allowed me to move on and uh, yeah the first couple of years just not getting fun drunk phone calls from Adam and <laughs> and he started coming when he was home off tour he would come see my, my band Seamless play and Joel would wear the Seamless t-shirt on stage when Killswitch would play so they were showing their solidarity killer and I think understood started to understand that I had issues mental issues and yeah I remember years later meeting up with Joel for his wedding celebration and he pulled me aside and was like I get why you left sometimes you have to take care of yourself and take care of your wife and I just want you to know I, I never really held any harbor of negative emotion towards you so it was nice and then eventually got that from Mike he you know was like I, you know I'm sorry I just was angry at you and I was like rightly so so yeah it took a little while but Adam was the first one to reach out to me and check on me and I'll never forget that we've been tight ever since that so but yeah as the years went on I kept getting updates and phone calls from Adam on tour some of it started to get negative and I think those guys burned themselves out really hard on touring um, but that's another story was the Times Grace record a key uh, sort of stepping stone in you know, refinding your relationship to Killswitch directly, and I don't think Adam or I had any intention of having that be a segue into Killswitch at right. all. In fact, truth be told, when they were trying to um, get recording for what would become Disarm the Descent with Howard. Um, I knew it wasn't working out and selfishly I wanted Times of Grace to continue on I thought Killswitch would go by the wayside and Times of Grace would, would carry on but clearly Killswitch has such a legacy they cared enough to want to carry on without Howard and initially I before anything was hit the press I was the guy that they called on and I actually turned it down I said no I first of all selfishly wanted Times of Grace to continue on and second of all, um, did you feel like that chapter was closed for you? Yeah, and and I just, you know, honestly, to be completely honest with you, 
wasn't really a, a big fan of that type of music, like metalcore. I don't, still don't really listen to any of that kind of music. The bands that I do, I count on my fingers. So I wasn't really familiar with their catalog, I'm completely honest with you. Um, and the songs I didn't know, like End of Heartache, at the time I was like, I couldn't sing a song like that with any conviction. Like, I don't want to sing about broken hearts, which I feel differently about it now because I've attached my own emotion to that song, but... Yeah. Was that an interesting process oh, to was, jump ahead a bit? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's... Because obviously you're someone who bases their entire reputation and everything approach on integrity mm. and honesty. And so it must have been either exciting or difficult or both to take this material and make it your own. How did you go about doing that? Yeah, it was both. Um, you know, like I said, I turned it down and then I found out that the band was later on was going to hold auditions for another singer and at the time I was working at a bar bar backing and learning to do mixology like I love that I've spent many years tending bar it's, uh, it's great but it's exhausting yeah especially in New York City <laughs> it is insane um, so yeah as as per usual with my life trying to figure my life out I got into bartending and that was my new thing I was gonna, I'm going to be a bartender and then I heard they were going to have rehearsals and I remember saying to myself, I could either continue to do this or I could just give it a shot. What's the worst that could happen? You know, I realize I'm not a good fit for the band. I can't, can't sing Howard's material. I don't have like what it takes to be in this band. So I, I called up the management and I said, put me on the list for, for audition. I'm going to spend the next week and a half or so listening to Howard's material and trying to latch on and see if I could be genuine with it. The first song I tackled was um, Arms of Sorrow, which is still one of my favorite Killswitch songs, and it's basically a song about depression. Uh, and then from there, it just kind of snowballed. I think Absolution was the next one. I was like, this song's awesome. So I started listening to stuff and became like a fan of it. I'm like, this is really well-written songs. Holy shit. And I started getting exciting, you know, excited because I, I realized that the lyrics were relatable the songwriting was brilliant and then for me the next step was like physically how do I deliver this stuff without sounding like I'm trying to mimic Howard which I, th I still think I had trouble with even within the first few years of rejoining the band so yeah challenging exciting and then when I showed up to the rehearsal when we did those songs it just felt good it was like I, I, I can do this so yeah, it was it was a journey. It still is. Yeah, man. It still is a journey for me. Um, and now I have a pretty good grasp on the songs that I didn't write. And the challenge for me now is writing new material that continues to push that envelope, which I think I did on this last record. Even so much so to the point where I still have trouble reproducing some of it live. Um, Technically. Which, yeah, which is good and bad. I think it's good because it's pushing me, and I've been I'm back in vocal lessons, and I'm relearning how to use my instrument properly and I think I'm finally getting good at singing <laughs> it's only taken me 20 23 years um, but I think as an artist you want to push yourself you want to always get better and I'm continuing to do that I'm still not a great vocalist but I'm getting better and I'm proud of that what's your drive as a lyricist Jesse I know the kind of key theme for you is well themes are positivity unity empowerment solidarity um, you know that comes from I guess the hardcore 
background, but what's been your inspiration over the years as a lyricist, maybe from a musical standpoint and also in terms of just life, the world, other writers outside of music? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I think the world around me, current events, but writing it in such a way where it's not um, beating you over the head with, with a political message. I've injected my political stuff here and there um, through Hate by Design, um, um, The Great Deceit. You know, I think that's one of the topics I like to tackle. And the positivity is always good because I think that helps people. Like In Due Time is one of those songs that's made it into our set regularly that I'm proud of. Got a Grammy nomination as well, didn't Yeah, you? crazy, right? But um, I think just being honest, and I think some of the darker songs that I've written that have sort of um, changed the sound a little bit, you know, um, are what I'm proud of. Expanding the repertoire, expanding the, the, the sonic... Um, catalog of what Killswitch is where we can have songs that are a little more lighthearted and upbeat and then have songs that are dark and heavy but I have to say a lot of my lyrics and ideas come from the sounds that are created by these guys so when I hear the demos I take them and listen to them and the way that music makes me feel will dictate what I write about I'm very very the way I work is, is through my ears and then to my heart. So I have to give them more credit for sort of laying that foundation because the music comes first. I'm handed the demos and then from that point I will write. So a lot of the times it's me listening to a bunch of songs and sort of writing bullet points. This song makes me think this. Also, loneliness, for example. What about loneliness? And that's kind of how I write Killswitch songs. Just going by what how it the, the chords make me feel was it a good time getting back in the studio with them for disarm the descent after you know that was great 10 uh, years it was fun and, <laughs> and uh, it, difficult but fun um especially since we were touring throughout the whole process it was hit the ground running you know they gave me 17 songs and i started recording within a couple weeks we had our first show we we're out in europe doing festivals it was quick and in the breaks of touring instead of recuperating and relaxing I'm working on a record so it was pretty intense but I look back on that time with just absolute uh, happiness and joy it changed my whole life and it seems like you know that happiness and joy continues today it seems like as you say the mood in the Killswitch camp is the healthiest the best it's ever been I think it's we as a band yes there's a love there and a um, a passion for sure but I, I can honestly say where we are as of today is very exhausted right we are road weary um, I know a lot of guys can't wait to get home but that's a byproduct of exhaustion from the road I think that aside yeah we're all very unified and, and excited to write new stuff but I think all of us need a nice break it happens though you know yeah, you, yeah. you book tours you get excited and then we have been pretty much nonstop for almost 12 weeks and uh, I think we're all ready for a nice break and we get one we get about two and a half months off nice recharge the batteries but yeah other than road exhaustion yeah we're, we're all in a mentally good place as a band 
Well, I think I'll use that opportunity to wrap it up because I don't want to kill your voice before the oh, show. Oh, right on, man. Um, just a quick question before we kind of <clears> end <throat> it. Um, is parenthood something you've considered would it, would ever like to explore? Because it, it strikes me as strange that someone like you with so much love to give hasn't already got a little army of leeches yeah, you know, I <laughs> running think, around the place. I think If that's not too much of a personal question. No, not at all. No, I think it's an interesting one because I do absolutely adore children. I'm actually one of those guys that will walk around when I'm out on tour and I see kids playing in a playground or whatever. I literally stop and just get filled with joy watching children play and hearing the things they say and the way they act. I love kids. I have uh, two nephews and a niece. I adore them. But I gotta tell you, I'm quite happy that I don't have them because I really enjoy being spontaneous. I really enjoy not having anything to tie me down. So when I get home from tour, I can just up and go on an adventure and take my wife with me. And uh, she's a nanny professionally, so that sort of alleviates her maternal yeah, instinct. Yeah, right? and yeah. then she's <laughs> able to clock out at six o'clock and have a glass of wine. And <laughs> I think we both have gotten to a point where we're truthfully not doing anything to stop it, but we're glad that we're not pursuing it. We're not trying to have a child. I think if it were to happen, of course, both of us would be happy with it. But being out here living this life, I can't imagine. I miss my wife as it is. I can't imagine having a child. I can't imagine that. I don't know if I would do well with being away for as long as I am from a child. So I see it as a blessing that I don't have them. But I do love kids. They're awesome. And they they make you see the world completely differently. They're just pure joy and pure emotion kind of like dogs <laughs> this experience <laughs> do you have any pure, pets you no no pets either that's the same reason yeah absolutely like I'm a dork for dogs I love dogs but dork for dogs <laughs> I just love being a free spirit I love not having anything dictate me getting up early or you know getting to bed earlier not I can't do this because I love my freedom I'm very selfish with my freedom so Right now, I'm happy without dogs or kids, but someday that may change when I start slowing down, getting tired. Probably dogs, though. I think over kids. <laughs> Easy way in. Yeah. Well, here's to freedom, man. Um, thank you for an incredibly stimulating conversation. Thank you, man. Appreciate um, it. Thanks for your time, and uh, enjoy tonight, and we'll see you very soon. Thanks, brother. Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 